produced by Ranting Rhino Productions, Praxis Pedagogy exists to position our teaching and learning practice within different methodologies. We want to construct a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in our own teaching and learning and in our students' experience. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you tuned into episode 80. In this episode, we have Edna Galansky. Now, Edgar Galansky is a world-renowned piano pedagogue and the leading exponent of the Taubman approach. She has earned wide acclaim throughout the United States and abroad for her pedagogical expertise, her extraordinary ability to solve technical problems, and for her penetrating musical insight. Edna started piano study in Israel at the age of eight, a gifted pianist, She played recitals at the age of 10 and was performing with orchestras by the age of 12. Edna came to the United States when she was 16 years old. Get that, she was 16 years old. She came to the United States and was immediately accepted to the Juilliard School of Music. And for the next eight years, studied there, graduating with bachelor and master's degree in piano performance. You're really going to enjoy this episode. I had a great time talking with Edna. It was an honor and a pleasure to have her on the show. All right, there we go. All right, three, two, one. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you've taken the time to listen into today's episode, episode 80. I have a very special guest uh, on the podcast today. Her name is Edna Galansky. And Edna, it is my honor and pleasure to have you here today. And I am really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to your questions and sharing uh, ideas and information. And, uh, you know, I'm very happy to be here. Okay, good. That, oh, well, this is going to be awesome. So Edna, why don't you share with us a little bit of your background, uh, specifically where you were born and, and how that played into your introduction into the music world. I was born in Jerusalem, Israel. Um, and at age three, we moved to Haifa, which is a town on the Mediterranean. So I'm very, I'm a sea lover. You know, <laughs> water lover from then on. Um, I don't know if it had anything to do with what happened later on. I mean, it was Israel was a young country, uh, many Holocaust survivors. Uh, my family lost, you know, I had no aunt and uncles, uh, no grandparents. Um, and that was the normal. Uh, so, but my mother, my mother came from Poland and, um, Education was very important. Life was very limited in terms of what uh, Jews could do and uh, what kind of professions they could practice. But the father made sure that they went to to the good schools, wherever they could be accepted, and that my mother learned the violin. And that, that somehow there was a love of music or just the idea that music should be part of your life. My parents didn't have much money, but the next building, there was a piano teacher. So um, I started taking lessons and I was what people would say, well, quite old at age eight. So I, that was, you know, and um, yeah, so that was my, uh, that, that's how I started. And um, 
I really just did it. You know, it wasn't like you asked about when did you realize that you love music? Um, I don't think it was a love. I think I was just told to do it. And I didn't have a piano. I practiced at the piano theater. She was also, you know, came from Poland. Um, and, um, and I practiced there. And apparently I learned very quickly. I had no way to measure or to think about it. Um, but within a year, I was playing already, I guess, intermediate um, pieces and playing fast. And she decided to pass me on to her teacher who had the education, you know, in Moscow was, you know, had, had the conservatory education. And I studied with her until I came to this country. And she really, I had to go twice a week. I had to, to take a bus and then walk. It wasn't, you know, close by. And, um, and I think she instilled a lot in me. She was a wonderful teacher you know, in terms of very, very musical, very devoted. Um, and within a year, she put me on stage and I gave a recital <coughs> at age 10. <clears throat> and then at 12, I was playing with an orchestra. So those things kind of happened. Um, <clears throat> and um, I listened to music because radio was on in those years. We still listened to the radio. And I responded. I remember listening to Tchaikovsky uh, concerto and Rachmaninoff, and I remember, especially the, you know, the romantics, and and I loved it. I mean, I felt the, you know, emotional connection. <clears throat> and then at age sixteen, um, I had an uncle who was a, a Holocaust survivor who came to to the U.S., married and had a family at that point. And um, my father, his brother, had died in in what you know in Israel. When I was a baby and he, knowing that I was gifted, he and his wife suggested that I come and study in the U.S. Um, so I was put on a boat and, <laughs> and came to the U.S. not speaking the language. And uh, somehow I was put in high school. I learned within a few months I was speaking fairly well. And I, I was, I didn't know anything about Juilliard. I didn't know exactly where, but they said, you know, we'll send it to the best school. They really wanted me to come. And I started going to the prep division once a week. I was going to high school. <clears throat> and um, I really enjoyed it. And I had a wonderful teacher also, very devoted, Jane Carlson. And at one point she brought me to Rosina Levine. Um, who was like the big teacher uh, at Juilliard. And uh, she accepted me uh, for the next year. I still had to take the exam, the entrance exam to the college level. And I worked with her, but she was very, very old. And uh, I was really was not getting very much. And uh, my roommate said that her teacher, Adele Marcus, really was interested in me. So I started working with her and I did it through my master's degree. So I would say that my, my years uh, at Juilliard really opened my eyes. Um, I was exposed to a world of music that I didn't know before. Yeah, I was going to concerts. The school had a wonderful orchestra, wonderful dance department. I mean, it was just a whole world opened up. Um, and I would say that that's when I really realized how much I love music. I really needed that kind of infusion uh, I was not a huge practicer, but things came easily enough. 
Um, so that was the, you know, with the, the early years. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So when, when you moved from, from Europe, Europe to the States, did you come by yourself or did your parents come with you or did they, were you just put on a boat and you knew you were going to end up in the U S and, and how, and in you were Brooklyn. 12. No, I was 16. Oh, 16. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. 16. I mean, 16. I'm mercy. Crazy. But... Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It was, um, my family was involved. Um, I, my uncle was a, a sea captain. And so I was like put in hands, like you put a child on an airplane and there's someone who takes care of the child. And I had a wonderful time you know, doing it, I mean, you know, being a teenager on, on a boat, you know. Um, and, um, you know, we had connections to the, it was not like owning ships or anything, you know, it was all government owned, but my father also worked for, you know, it was uh, in relation, my adoptive father. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I was put on a boat and two weeks later, I mean, we stopped in Europe. I actually, Israel is in the Middle East. So I came from the Middle East um, through some of the ports in Europe. I saw a little bit of the world and I ended up, uh, yeah, it was a shock. The first year was very difficult. I almost gave up. I was very homesick and I didn't speak the language and I had to go to school, you know, and learn everything. But uh, by the end of that year, I went home. My mother said, don't go back. And, but I decided at that point that hmm. I was ready to go back. That must've been a hard decision to go back. If your mom's saying, don't go back and you have this year alone, we're well, not alone, but away from immediate family and you've, you've done so much growth and you've learned so much. That must've no, been a hard said, decision. No, because no, she said that because that year I really suffered. I cried a lot. That was the reason. And I was, my family was wonderful. The, had two cousins also. So they were wonderful. I mean, it was as good as it could be. I was just, I didn't realize, you know, I saw films about the United States, you know, and it was very idealized and how you go to school and how it looks. And, you know, and reality is always different. But so it was only because of that. I think that um, having been, you know, having lost her family, and uh, and then losing a husband to <clears throat> having a young baby and still letting me go i think was to me when i look back an act of incredible love because i think she suffered when and i have two children i could never see sending anyone at age six <laughs> no way <laughs> i know you're i know how you feel that because i have four myself and my oldest daughter who's my second oldest child she flew in a plane to i mean she was still on the continent she flew from here to you know iowa and i'm following the tracking thing on <laughs> on the internet and her plane got diverted a little bit because of a storm. And I'm already thinking like, okay, so is she going to make her connections? How is she going to get from here to there? She hasn't even landed yet. And I'm already thinking, I can't imagine, Can imagine? putting, putting my, my 16 year old daughter on a boat and saying, okay, in two weeks, you're going to make it across the Atlantic and you'll be in a whole new country of essentially a whole new world. Right. Right. But you know, it was, if, if I didn't want to go, I didn't know. I was just, it was offered. And my mother said, 
you know, this is the opportunity and it sounded very exciting. I mean, I can't say that anyone forced me to do it. And have, you will have, I think that she felt that there would be um, an opportunity that otherwise I wouldn't have. And my intention was to come back. But then I met Dorothy Taubman and that changed my, you know, my plans. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about Dorothy in a few minutes, but um, when you're 12 and you're on a stage doing like a full on orchestra situation, like you're 12, like tell us what you were, what you were thinking. Were you thinking anything or were you just in the moment and here we go? Totally scary. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Good to hear. <laughs> my teacher just she was really like a mother hen. I mean, she took me, she worked with me, and then you know she was there, like like a mother. Um, yeah, I think that the whole th- it, it wasn't one of those experiences when I read about people and you know the, someone you know the the parents gave them violin at age three or four, and they said it was it or a kid sitting at the piano and they say, oh my God, this is it. Uh, no, it was kind of just, just something that came easily. And, uh, and I had people who were kind of, uh, I, I wouldn't say pushing, but kind of, um, yeah, putting me in those places. And I think, and I think I, I did have, I just don't remember how I felt in those years. I know that I loved you know, I love to play and I love the music. Um, I didn't love practicing. When we talk about practicing, I have a totally different view. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's all a little bit, it's all a little bit hazy how it all happened. And, and somehow, and I feel extremely fortunate that it turned out this way. Because I really, um, it was a good match for me. But if I hadn't met Dorothy Taumann, I don't know if I would have stayed in music. Yeah, because I think that as much as I liked performing, but I could see the rest of my life sitting in a room. I really realized that and practicing five, six, seven hours a day. The idea that things will get you know, things will always improve. And uh, I, I, I was really very, very naive because I didn't really know anything. I, I, my education started with Dorothy Taubman. And I don't mean everything, but because uh, I was exposed, you know, I, I'm very grateful for all that I got, you know, from this school. But in terms of learning about the piano and what, you know, what technique is, how, how you express music. It's like I, I started then. Yeah. I start. It's interesting that you bring up the word technique because in, in some of my research that I was doing in preparation for today's uh, conversation, um, I noticed that you would use this term natural technique uh, specifically about yourself, that you learned how to play this natural technique and, or in a style that was very natural. And I've never heard that before. Could you, what does that mean? You, you mean uh, with, with Dorothy Taubman or I, I don't remember in what really in what yeah. it was. Yeah. It was in context of you being at Juilliard and they were training you and you said, you know, I, I, I learned a lot there, but I, I played in this real natural technique um, kind okay. of way. I'll explain. I, I, I had a facility 
And I was always told I'm very natural. And I think I was natural, meaning that it kind of, um, it was fluid. And I could, I could move quickly and I could move around the piano. But in retrospect, there were, there were many limitations. I always told it I don't need technique because, and I was very lucky because technique means, meant, and still means to a great degree, sitting and practicing exercises. And those exercises actually cause many of the problems that musicians face. Um, so, so I was always left alone. Um, you know, you have a natural technique, you don't have to practice scales and arpeggios two hours a day and then go to music. It was that kind of, a na- kind of instruction. Um, so that's what I meant, I think, by, you know, it looked very natural and it looked very fluid and everybody thought of me as being a very natural pianist. That's what it was. I mean, natural to, to today means something very different to me. Um, but what, what it was then, it was how, how people saw it, you know, when I played. It was fluid. Right. So what does, what does natural mean to you now? You know, we, a lot of people use that word. It's thrown around. You know, this is natural and this is natural. But they're having pain. So in other words, when people say it's natural to me, I, I say it's really not natural, but it's habitual. In other words, we form habits and people go to that. Uh, I do it because it's natural. Natural to me means something that goes with ease. That uh, it, it's, uh, it, it flows very easily, that, um, that there are no symptoms. But natural goes Nature has to be studied. You know, what is natural is not necessarily what we do, just do. You know, sometimes, in other words, even prodigies who have great talent and and intuition uh, very often become injured. It's something that is very instinctual, you know, that, that, uh, what do I have? Uh, Just a second. I wrote some things about... What is, uh... yeah, and something also, I would say what is natural is also something that feels very pleasant, pleasant. It feels good. It feels good. It comes with ease. It feels good. Um, that it's, it's, that it's unhindered by limitations. That's what I would call, um, and again, that it's symptom free. Um, what I learned about nature is that a lot of it is hidden from the eye and has to be learned. In other words, that nature, that, that you don't see how the body works. The body works in a very natural way, unless we are sick, right? But can you tell what it's doing? You can't. Can't tell, you see the outside, you know, but, but you don't see how the heart works, you have specialists for that. You don't see how the kidneys work. You don't see, in other words, there's a whole system that makes the body work or not work if there's a failure. If, if you, you have a car, we don't see the inside unless you open it, right? And you look, but you need, you have parts that work and they do things and they work, they have to work together. You know, they have to be connected. That's what technique is. It's like a system of connections. Interesting. Okay. This is, this is really interesting because it, it makes me want to, think about how some people have this intuition or even this, this talent 
and it's raw and un uncultured, I guess, as you could say, and to use the old metaphor, like an uncut diamond. And now you're bringing in skill and, and technique to help that diamond shine uh, with its natural properties without cutting too much of it away and making it fragile. Well, so talking about prodigies or about the great talent and all of that, um, I think that what pro- th- there is such a thing as extremely, extremely gifted and extremely, extremely talented. And we can also talk about, you know, the whole, you, you asked, you know, about what's the role of talent or is it overrated? Uh, what, let me just say something about that. Um, when you have, you know, when people are judged on talent very often, they're really judged of how well they play. You know, in other words, when, when it's very fluid, it's, uh, it's called talented. So you have, you, have, you have one side that will say, you know, that it's, it's all talent. And you have the other side that says it's 10,000 hours of practice, you know, of right of learning. And the truth as often is, is somewhere in the middle. So I have, if talking about changing my mind, or one of the many, many things that I've learned is to my surprise, but of course it made total sense, is that when the limitations and when there are technical problems, talent can't come through very often. I've had students who came, you know, who had, I, I couldn't even tell, I knew that they were proficient and I knew that they were smart, they were devoted, this was their profession, but I couldn't tell the degree of talent. Yes, because they had pain, because I, I, think, I, I think of one case out of many, I had a young uh, girl, a, a, a South American, and she was studying in Paris, at the conservatory there. And she developed a, a pain in the fourth finger. She was injured, what you would call injury pain. And they tried all kinds of things and nothing worked. And her mother is a doctor. So someone told her to get in touch with me and they flew here and I looked at their small girl, small hands, pain, not playing, you know, all the very big pieces. And I said, look, I will get rid of the pain. I could see what it was. I'll get rid of the pain quickly, but it doesn't mean there's a great technique. You know, you can get rid of symptoms. If it doesn't mean underneath it, there's always a great technique. Sometimes there is. It just got off the road. Um, But what happened by the end of that year, uh, she came maybe in September, the pain was gone in no time. But then I worked and to use computer language I installed, you know, I could see what she wasn't doing right. I put in the right things with the end of that year, she was playing very difficult pieces and she was playing with such fluidity and she was so musical, which I couldn't tell at the beginning. Okay. That's amazing. So are you saying that the pain was holding back some of her ability to just let go and get caught up in the flow in the moment and feel the music and feel, feel the connection? It was not a, it was not a skillful technique. She was practicing a lot, but it just wasn't a great technique. I mean, I gave her the skills to be able to handle things, 
and taught her also how to get sound, which is part of, you know, it's the most basic thing in musical expression, how to physically shape phrases. So the music is shaped, how to breathe, how to, how, how to work uh, with the rhythm. I showed her how to play actually, and she learned so fast. And I, I always look to see what is the natural talent actually. In other words, what came from her, because I can direct and I can show people what to see in the music, what to bring out, and how to use the hand. The big word in this work is the how-to. It's not just say, you know, play this, you know, uh, very dramatically or sing. If the person does it, that's fine. I don't touch what I can do. But if most of the time they can't. And when I show what to do, it opens up the gates to expressivity. In the case of this girl, she was actually a huge talent. And when she finished, um, I'm an adjunct professor at the city university here. So people come to me and if they want to get a degree, they can, I'm on the faculty. Uh, the end of when she finished, they said it was the best recitals that they could remember. And when she came, she would have been, uh, she would have been called a mediocre talent. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> and sometimes people come and they're very, very accomplished and they don't need that much work. And I would say I have to work with them musically very, very hard. So I would say that there isn't such a natural talent uh, for music. They can develop. But so the role of talent is that, that the people um, who have a particular you know, affinity, I would say, technically, and musically very often also. And they go, the, the, the learning goes very, very quickly. And the people who are very smart and they're gifted and it's slower. You know, people don't go in the same, exactly in the same pace um, as others. So I don't know, does that answer uh, it? So I cannot judge. I feel that when people audition to conservatory and they're not considered to be talented, and they come and they just they're limited physically. They have problems. So I can't I can't even judge talent because I find that the more I put into them and the more I show them how to, the talent grows. And the bar grows. So I don't even I can't even tell the potential of a person. I mean, I say what this work does for you is actually you can realize your potential. But the potential grows. So it's kind of endless. I have people who've been with me for 10, 20, 30 years, you know. Some of them are our best teachers uh, and they play fantastically well. And the talent grows and the ability grows. And, you know, so we become smarter. I mean, this, this work really uses your head, your brain. You can't do it without thinking. You can't, there's no relearning without thinking, without going through the brain. So for me, one of the most exciting thing is that there is constant growth until the day you die. I mean, this is kind of the ideal thing that to be able to, you know, so I don't know. It's, no, that's, it's, that's good. It sounds too good to be true. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's encouraging because. I, I look at, you know, people that I know or even myself, right. I, I would never consider myself to be that technically sound. Uh, I have some talent, but to, but to know that there are certain things that someone can learn 
And if they're willing to put some work and dedication behind it, it almost, un, from what I'm hearing, it, it's like it unlocks a door where the potential is allowed to grow and the talent is allowed to, to grow and, and get better. Because I mean, as a, as a tradesperson, my craft and my skill gets better as I gain more experience because I do more things. I, I realize, Oh, I did that wrong. So when I go to do something again, I don't, I don't repeat the mistake and, or I, I watch somebody else do work and I, and I learn that technique or a, a, a method of doing the work and, I'll apply that in my own way, in my own craft. And so, yeah, it makes total sense that when somebody comes to you and, 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 and you can't really gauge their talent, it's, it's like you can't see through that closed door. And so what you're doing is you're giving them the key to unlock the door. They open the door doing all the work and then the talent emerges, the potential emerges and it just, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really, really endless. So I, the people who come to me, I mean, are serious people, you know, so I know that, I know that there is a talent there. I know that there is the, some of them come after, you know, after their doctoral pro- programs already, some of them come people who change professions because it just, they knew that, you know, that there were too many limitations. The, the love is so strong that when they discover this, they, they come back. And, and so age, by the way, it's only the, the desire to learn, but age is, a, is not a factor. Oh, that's, I, <laughs> that's yeah. encouraging to hear too. Cause uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've always held a, a high respect for people who play the piano. I just, it, it, I just almost become spellbound as I'm watching people play. Cause thinking that how do you how do you do all that work right and i know some of it is muscle memory but and some of it comes from practice but to me i like like you were saying earlier i i like going and listening and i want to feel emotionally moved by the music because yeah. i mean quite honestly i i couldn't tell you if somebody was really technically sound or not i mean other than hearing notes that probably shouldn't have been played but when I'm emotionally moved by a piece of music, that's where it really gets me. And I mean, I, I listen to a wide range of music too. I mean, I, I grew up li- listening to heavy metal, but I also love classical and, and I see a real connection between the two. Like there's, there's just something about the rhythm and the syncopation and the timing that just, they both have it. And I say that to people and they look at me like I'm crazy. And it's like, it's not, it's not that they're playing the same style necessarily. Like you're not going to hear heavy metal sounding like classical or classical sounding like heavy metal, but the, 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 the foundation of the, the, the bones are there. And then some people just look at me like I'm crazy, but you're not crazy. You're not crazy at all. And there were studies and I forget the name of the person at McGill university. Daniel, I can't remember his name, but he did a study. He was, uh, I think, a rock musician who became a neuroscientist. And, uh, he did the study 10, 15 years ago. What is it that gets people? You know, in a, what gets you when you sit in an audience? Um, and I think that it was, in, in his uh, opinion, it was timber. You know, it was that, that uh, I think a lot of it is rhythm also. I think it's quality of sound. It depends, you know. I mean, I listen to Lady Gaga and I'm very moved. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And not uh, my kids grew up on uh, you know in pop music, and I look used to look down, but I gave that up. It was it it was really a mistake, and I really do love. But I'm mostly you know I'm, I'm mostly involved with uh, classical music, modern music, and I work also with uh, jazz musicians. I mean, you know, how you play is the same no matter what. What I wanted to say, which is so complex with playing and playing uh, the piano is that you have to take ideas and, and transfer them into sensations. And what this work does that is so incredible that you become so sensitive to what is, you learn what is right and what feels good. Because it has to feel good. Um, and, and has to feel good and easy and there is a, a rightness about it. Um, and also, it's not forgotten. The right things, uh, the right movements, the right positions and the right movements. And we're talking about a very minute world because when you move, you see fingers moving, but it's, you don't see it small, it's small motions, it's small muscles. It's not like the whole body, you know? Um, so so trans, transferring, you know, the idea, the, the learning from, you know, from first hearing what it is into what it feels like. It's a whole world of sensations uh, at the piano. And it becomes a system that kind of goes back and forth. You know, the brain teaches, the hands learn, and the hand sends a message back. Ah, oh, that feels good. So, you know, when you ask, uh, you mentioned the word intuition. And I used to think that I have great intuition, you know, when I meet somebody and I don't like them, you know, no, because I'm very intuitive. Well, I learned I was wrong and I was wrong, you know, about people, you know, like that. But I learned also that intuition uh, at the instrument is primitive. And I know that we don't think that way. And I know that it's controversial even to say it. But, you know, I what it is, is that the intuition really gets in a way like with a with a prodigy. There's something very intuitive, clearly. But it gets off the road very often also because there's no knowledge to back it. When you do something that doesn't feel right, you don't know what it is and you keep doing it. And then other things uh, follow. But um, when things, it's like if you walk very awkwardly, if something doesn't feel right, where's the intuition? You know, is there intuition to say, do this or do that? You go to a therapist, you know, to, who tells you what's wrong. But, you know, through the years, I came through... Um, um, and actually an economist called Daniel uh, Kahneman. I don't know, um, you probably never heard of him, but my son went to the University of Pennsylvania. And whenever we went for parents weekend, we would get like the best professors giving talks. And, uh, and this professor Kahneman, uh, I hope I pronounced his name right, uh, was a Nobel Prize winner was one of the, I think he was at, at the university at the time. I'm not sure if he was, was there or it was, he was at Princeton. But he, um, he developed a whole system of, a, on, on a, of economics. He was an economist, basically. And he felt that the whole, that the way uh, economists thought, it was all math-based, really was not right. And he understood also, he was also a psychologist, that, that, he, could, um, that he could predict According to his research, he could predict actually 
what people you know would buy what what would make people buy what would make people not buy you know that there were certain predictable behaviors um uh in 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 economics and people laughed at him 30 years later he won the nobel prize and the field completely changed to be psychology based versus math based but so, but he said something so about his book because i just found that lecture so fascinating all the lectures were great but this one really got to me and he said our intuition is by no means an infallible guide our perceptions may be distorted by training and prejudice or merely because of the limitations of our sense organs which of course perceive but a small fraction of the world i said this is my friend <laughs> if he says it you know that and then i came across um the writer michael lewis and there was an interview with him something in the new york times and he talks about trained intuition and i love that you know that intuition what i find it when you put people on the right track it brings in the intuition because they can say the intuition says yeah this feels good this doesn't feel good this feels awkward ah oh, this feels just right you know so it's it's kind of the, the the intuition comes because i find it so much what this work really shows and all the things that also evolved uh that that i found through the last few decades um that that kind of put the work even further um was that that in some way our, our brains are a little bit primitive that there's certain i also learned that people people one of the surprises to me was how similar people absorb information so in a way like he did in economics um that i can even though the many differences in in you know because people come with different combinations of wrong and right they they come from you know just different backgrounds but how the brain works is very similar so i can basically uh very often predict certain behaviors that they are going to happen and I installed it actually into how I train teachers because it used to take me a long time. I would do something and then it would go to the other extreme. I edit something, go to the other extreme and then would have to bring back. And then I would add something and the thing before would be forgotten. You know, so I began to see how people learn and what to expect. And it kind of began to shorten, you know, in certain ways, the period of learning of certain, you know, uh, period of learning some things that we can tell ahead of time. And also, you know, we talk about being so different from each other and, you know, the prejudice and racism and, uh, and all of that. But, you know, we are built the same. Whichever way you want, you know, to look at it, you don't have to be a progressive, you don't have to be this, we are built the same, you know, the same muscles, the same tendons, the same connections in the brain, in the body. Um, and that's why you know there aren't many as so many techniques we told we are we come from a background that says there are as many techniques as there are pianists so are the millions and millions and millions of techniques there is a tremendous fear that uh that if there is a system of playing uh that we will all sound the same yeah i don't buy no i don't i don't buy into that 
Sorry. Don't buy so, that. So you know what I say? I say, you know, when painters learn how to use brush technique and how to mm -hmm. combine colors, they don't end up playing the same. No, painting. no, they don't. You, you, you can give you. I, yeah, I totally buy into that because you, you can give somebody the same palette of colors, the same brushes, exactly the same. You will get two different paintings because there's there's differences in pressure there's differences uh in in how the paint is applied there's there's differences in uh, there's just so many variables right what you want to paint it really frees the imagination what craft does it frees the imagination so you have you can't you can't be a great painter without without having the craft or sculpt you know so but in in playing we have a whole other world you know, that you, we are also different from each other, but you can, the interesting thing is that when you understand how we, how things work, really, you the freedom to become the individual that you are. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, that's, and, and looping back to what you were saying before about how you are unlocking the doors for people's potential and talent to emerge. I mean, you're really just opening the door for their personality to shine through and what they're doing. Right. And again, that's just so beautiful, but it's powerful too. Well, it's, I would say that that's maybe the most moving part. I mean, I, first of all, to me, technique and the way the technique works and to see that kind of that world uh, of interconnections that produces uh, playing um, to me, that's an art in itself. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's just really, uh, it's just amazing. You know, when you see, I mean, I see I, 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 my husband, uh, he's not no longer alive, but he, he was a neuroscientist. I always poo-pooed, you know, I mean, something scientific, what does it have to do with me? Um, but so I didn't really, you know, I, I wasn't at all thinking that way, uh, but he always said, you know, you, you can never do any research without asking questions first. And, and as musicians, we don't ask questions, you know, we, we are just told to practice uh, or something is wrong with you. Uh, it's all in your head. Um, it's practice. What happened, you know, practice makes perfect is only one of the things that we told and we practice and we practice. And, uh, you know, 30 years later, we're still practicing and we're still not getting what we want or worse, we get, uh, you know, we get uh, into pain. So. Yeah, so the whole idea, what the craft gives us and what skills gives us is the freedom, actually, like you say, to, to unlock, to shine and to be able really to do fantastic things. And that's the most moving thing with this. And it also changes your life because it all, all those limitations also cause emotional and psychological problems. So, you know, so there comes, you know, the therapist and the psychiatrist, which, you know, there may be. A place for it but if the problem you're having those if the cause for those problems has to do with faulty technique you're not going to solve it and tell yourself that it's psychological first you know solve those problems and if let's say usually it solves the psychological problems and if there's still problems for sure then a psychologist or therapist can can help you but most of those problems are really rooted in not being able to to be to do what you want and to do it well. Yeah, no, totally agree. Totally agree. The whole science of learning how to learn or learning how other people learn is that's something that that revolutionized my own teaching practice. And 
moved me, I think, in a really strong trajectory of, you know, having a passion for teaching and teaching what I know and teaching what I love uh, to a whole new area of not only do I still love it, but I, I love learning how other people learn so that I can tweak how, what, how I do it to help them learn it not only easier, but so that it stays with them for a lot longer than when they leave my classroom. Right. And yeah, that's, that's amazing. If I could roll us back just a tiny bit, how did you come to know Dorothy? Cause Dorothy was, was an instrumental in your trajectory and uh, just would love to hear that, that, that story. How did you and Dorothy meet and, and, um, and, and yeah, let's go from there. How did you and Dorothy meet? Well, my roommate uh, at Juilliard, who was also my best friend, um, came from, my, from a scientific home, both parents, uh, scientists. And she, that's how she, you know, her brain worked that way. She was good at math. She learned languages very easily, but she was limited at the piano. I mean, she was still at Juilliard. She played well, but she always stuck to Bach and Mozart. And she said that's all she was interested in. Her parents met some people who knew Dorothy, who were friends of Dorothy, and they told uh, her parents that there is this teacher who has kind of a scientific method, which to me, hearing that was a total turn off. I mean, what does science have to do with music? You know, we are musicians, you know, <laughs> you know, we talk about music, but she was interested and she started taking lessons on the side and I could, we had a piano in the apartment. And I began to hear, you know, she was playing so much better. I was considered the good pianist and she was like, you know, the more limited one. And she was beginning to play big pieces like Liszt. I said, you don't like Liszt. How come you're playing Liszt? She said, because now I can. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and then she told Dorothy, she always admired my ability. So she kept t- telling her about it. So they kind of. You know, Dorothy said, oh, you have to bring her, you have to bring her. And I didn't want to go and I didn't want to go and I didn't want to go. And one day she said, just come and observe a lesson. So I went to observe a lesson and it was kind of a shock because I've never been at a lesson where you ask questions and they actually very logical answers. And then you try them and they work and then you move on to something else. So it was kind of a shock. I mean, what is this? You know, because we never ask questions usually. And if we do, very often the teachers say, well, practice more or that's not my problem, you know? And uh, I mean, there, there are no real answers. It's kind of, you know, very amorphous. So it kind of looked interesting. So I took some lessons and also I played for her. She asked me to play for her. She said, you're very gifted. She said, but do you have backache? And I instantly thought this woman is a witch because I yeah, no kidding, eh? Yeah, <laughs> because I had it from since I was eight or nine. My mother took me to doctors. They didn't know what it was. They thought maybe one leg was too short. And blah blah blah. There was really nothing to do. And she explained I had certain relaxations in the end, and uh, like the wrist was a little bit down. And uh, there were some knuckles that looked a little bit caved in. I still managed. You see, people manage in spite of. And she explained to me that when that happens, when, when there are breaks in the alignment, 
the back mass, you kind of, you're, bad, you're kind of falling off the instrument, you know, when you have those relaxations. So she said, other muscles come to the help to keep you on the piano, but they're not suited for that job, you know, but something, something else is holding you, which is what symptoms are, you know, when, when you don't do the right thing, other muscles come kind of, kind of as, as a, to, to um, compensate. So, and she was totally right. I mean, it wasn't solved that moment, but it was, it kind of was a little bit like magic, you know, how does the woman know, you know, what, what was going on? Could ask questions, get answers. It kind of seems rational, but I don't really know, you know, it's a little bit weird, you know, but anyway, so I took lessons and, and it definitely, I became curious. So like I said, I wasn't excited right away. I mean, I be, I be, I ended up being her main disciple and putting this work, you know, out, but it took me a while, you know, and it was very hard also to be in school and having to play fast every week, a new piece memorize, you know? Um, so it was, it was difficult. So I did it for a while and then I decided, um, to wait until I graduated, uh, with my masters, my, my teacher was sure she said, you have, you know, you're continuing for the doctoral program. Um, and it was kind of under, she said, you're in, you know, it was like, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no problem. Um, but I realized then that this is the route, this is the road that I didn't want to continue just playing and not knowing what I was doing. I realized that I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing it, like you say, naturally, instinctively. But I saw that there were solutions to things and I decided I really, I really want to know it. It was like, I, I, the curiosity was, this is really interesting. You know, I really want to understand everything about it. So that's how, and then starting the next year, I, I became, you know, fully immersed. In, so that's how I met her completely, you know, completely by chance. I don't know if otherwise she had, people from other universities, you know, studying on the side, but I don't know if I would have heard about her and my life would have taken a very different trajectory. For sure. For sure. So how do how do you, how do you work with some of the world's best musicians? Like they're coming to you and they're, they're already pretty established and, and, and how, how do you, approach in essence almost breaking down their technique to build them back up to play more freely because that that's what i'm hearing you say when when people come to you and they've got this great background and they're talented and and they've got all this skill but there's just something holding them back and it's almost like you you break them down to build them back up again uh that might not be the right way to say it but it sounds to me that's what you're doing how do how do you work with somebody who's got that that kind of pedigree that comes to you and, and like, what do you, what do you do with them? That's actually a very good question. People don't come in the same condition. So people, you know, so that different, uh, I would say, uh, categories of people who come, the people who come and they're really destroyed. So I have to, you know, I, I, there's no choice, you know, I have to start and very often, I was just thinking today, again, I'm veering. Sometimes I, I, I say something and then I think about something. <laughs> so, you know, forgive me for jumping around, but I was thinking actually, you know, when people first come, they've tried everything 
and they began to doctors and to therapists and they did, you know, all kinds of body things and the, you know, the injuries are still there and they come and they're in shock, basically, you know, that they have to start again. And I always tell them, you don't have to, I said, but I can't, I can't fix it unless I, you know, I put a good foundation and very often it doesn't take that long. So this is one, I would say one category. And I was thinking, I don't know if it's like that, but, um, that like the category, there are stages of grief and the stages of people coming just so, uh, so destroyed, you know, that there is, there is, I wrote, there's a shock and there's a confusion and there's, then, but they find out that something can be helpful. They become angry, you know, that they wasted all that time. Uh, there is a denial, you know, there is finally acceptance. And then very often they'll say, you know, something, if I hadn't been injured, I wouldn't have learned this and become better than I ever would have been. So, you know, that happens, but let's say I have people who come and, uh, and they have a performance or they have an audition and they have certain problems that are really in the way I don't take the technique apart. I put in what I can see right away. And that sometimes that's what takes sometimes the greatest skill is what to touch and what not to touch. And especially in situations like that, first of all, not to touch things. I happen to know at this point, what is good in the technique and what is not, I don't teach what I don't have to teach. You know, in other words, I'll put things that will connect to what is good in you, what is working and bring it back to a natural state, how the body went to work. But people like this, um, I will work, I get people who are really very, very good. And they, I would say, what really is it? What do you want from me? You know, because there are no symptoms, not bad symptoms. They're playing very difficult pieces. They played with orchestras. And one of the, the, and those are actually the people who come at the right time. And they say, I feel, I feel like I hit a wall. That is an intelligent person. That they don't just think if I practice more, if I practice more, if I practice, if I practice. And they said, I can have this. Even though they play difficult pieces, there's certain pieces I'm still afraid to take, they would say. And I, I, I would like a better sound. And I have some passages that consistently give me trouble. I will try to put things, even if it's not 100%, that Im immediately ameliorate the, the situation. And sometimes, even though I know how much more there can be, if they're happy with it, that's fine. They, they will get through. So I will do, I don't have to, I do, even in my presentations, I do like problem solving in action or, uh, you know, quick solutions. What, what can I do with somebody unless they're very, very injured? Immediately, sometimes it's wrong fingering. Sometimes they sit too low. Sometimes I, the wrist has to be a little bit, uh, a little bit higher. Sometimes it's how they get power. They're forcing. I explain where power comes from. Immediately it becomes easy. How to put the key down where sound is produced. Things that I should have learned. Juilliard, you know, years ago, I was told yeah. to play for my back, to play for my stomach. You know, the stomach doesn't play and the back doesn't play. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, it's nonsense. So I don't take everybody apart. But interestingly, very often when I'll get somebody immediately much better and they see the potential, they, they will, when the performance is over, or sometimes later, they'll come and say, I would like to learn a little bit more from the ground up. But those people are very easy. It goes very quickly because they have a lot of the natural already. 
So what I have to put, and some of them, they, some of the prodigies who lost, who became injured, because a teacher, instead of saying, not touching them, said, move your fingers more, gave them some exercises, and the technique went off. Oh, wow. So, so with people like that, with a very innate sense of playing and who played well, when I put them on the right track, they will say, that's how I used to play. <laughs> Except that now they're gaining, actually, you know, the control over their lives. What this, what knowledge is control over what you do. So it's not an accident. Like they say, sometimes it comes out and sometimes it doesn't come out. That used to be my experience. I didn't know when it was right. I didn't know when it was not right. I didn't know what the elements were. And this gives them so that 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 can be fast. And then from there, they can move. And there's the potential grows, grows, grows the talent, you know, so that's so I have the different types, but I would say the smart people and you really need to be smart for this, usually want to know a lot more. And also I, I train people to be teachers because what you get is what you need. But that doesn't give you enough knowledge to help somebody else except maybe in a more superficial way. And the injuries, they're not less, lesser injuries. There are more and more injuries and they are more and more and more serious. Really? Yeah. Wow. So that, that's shocking to hear. Well, cause quite honestly, as I was doing some of the research, I'm, I'm thinking injuries, like how, how do you get injured? Like, playing the piano other than the, for me, from, from an untrained eye, I'd be like, okay, I get the repetitive motion injury, stuff like that. But you know, there was, there was stories of people having like massive shoulder pain and back pain and hip pain. And I'm like, what, this is the, you're not moving the piano, you're playing it, but yeah. That's serious. It, it can take the whole body. Yeah. If, for example, if you isolate, if you come from the world of isolation, you're full of tension. If you curl your fingers, you're pulling on muscles to tighten, and then you're giving exercises to move the fingers. When they're in a position that is hard to do, we are in the world of stretching, everything, the fingers, you know, you don't have to be smart when you do that, immediately there's tension. And then the fingers have to go down and play and play fast. Uh, if you sit too low, or if you drop your wrist low, the shoulders go up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't help but make the connection between what I was hearing and watching and to just some fundamental ergonomics of even how we sit at our desks and work. Yeah. Well, those symptoms come from clicking on the computer. I have a website for computer users because it's the, the, the fundamental things of no, no isolation, no breaks in the alignment, the right height, the right seating. And then on, on top of that is how do we move? in an aligned way. Just being aligned doesn't give you the information. It's like the first step. So you have people, I mean, if you read uh, years ago, I read, um, you know, I read the, the New York Times, the science section once a week, there's a science section. There's a, a woman who writes uh, every week and occasionally there's an article about, you know, computer and she would say, something so innocuous how could it cause she describing a young man 28 who couldn't drive anymore couldn't do anything on the computer well clearly it's not so simple but but the answers actually i can usually to work with somebody at the computer or they can't hold the iphone or they can't you know when they're clicking and they're curling the thumb and all of that and they have the, the problems with the thumb and the other fingers 
that takes me maybe 15 or 20 minutes to fix and maybe see the person again, because that's all you need is several movements, several positions, several situations. And you show it to play the piano is much more complicated. On top of that, you have to learn many other things because you music. But the, the, the foundation, why people get injured, could be from one movement, you know, one twisted movement of the hand going like this or like that. People holding, you know, uh, the knife in the kitchen. Chefs, I mean, most professions have injuries. They can be, and they can be cured in a few minutes. Yeah. Knowledge. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah it, that was amazing to me. So I, I remember watching, uh, a, a teaching a, a lecture that you were doing and you made this comment and I wrote it down and put it in our list to talk about today. You said practice doesn't make perfect. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by practice doesn't mean make perfect because we hear that all the time. No, what, what we really hear, uh, you know, it, it started with the saying, you know, when, when somebody gets into a cab in New York and say, you know, take me, you know, what would it take to take me to Car- Carnegie Hall? How do I get to Carnegie Hall? Cabdari says, practice, practice, practice. You know, right, yeah. He's yeah. going to concert, but... So we have the whole saying in uh, in our field that, um, that practice makes perfect. So the question is, what are we practicing? In other words, if you're practicing, when they talk about overuse syndrome, you know, Talman called it misuse. So they think you get injured from, from overuse, but the repetitive stress injuries, but it's overusing the wrong movement, doing them again and again and again and again and again. So what I say, well, I, I put together years ago a lecture, well, what happens when practice doesn't make perfect? And the thing is that when we teach what we teach, what we practice, actually the solutions to problems. You don't have to do things a million times. And when the solutions are right and they work in, you don't forget them. It's a time saver. You don't have to do them again and again and again. It's like it's the body. It's like the body has its own intelligence. The hands actually become intelligent. You know, you you have installed a whole world of what is needed. So the question is, what are we practicing? You know, when things feel good, you don't. They're there. They're in your hands. So you you want to make it better. You work on the music. You 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 take new pieces. So there are things to work on. It's not that there isn't, but um, but most people, you know, when they practice, you know, the overuse syndrome, they're practicing motions that eventually lead to injuries. You know, if your fingers are all isolated and you do it hours a day, if they're curled, so full of tension, and you're practicing. So that's what I'm talking about. We have to practice the solutions, what this work really does, it kind of magnifies what Taiwan was able to do is to penetrate, to ask the right questions and to penetrate underneath and to begin. She had a certain intuition what to do, but she didn't know it was going to lead to what she didn't sit down one day and said, I'm going to figure out piano technique. She just wanted to know why am I tense? She was gifted. She practiced a lot and certain passages never fell in. She practiced and practiced and practiced and you still couldn't count on it. So instead of accepting it as well, that's how things are. She said, something must be, there must be a better way. And if prodigies could do it, if I could only figure out what is it that they do that they don't know that they do, if I could figure it out, then 
everybody can have a technique. So that's when I talk about practice is, you know, so what we practice actually is what ends up to be the final solution magnified at the beginning, a little bit bigger and taking apart for different situations and put together. It's like wiring the different movements into a system that creates a computer. You know, it's really, it's, it's a wired system. And so the practicing begins to be really what the final result is. At the beginning, it's, you know, you take elements, you separate them. She was able to separate, how do we move across? How do we move into the blacky area and out? Because if we don't move in and out, we end up twisting. Yeah, I, know. I remember seeing that. I'm like, that's just so, when, when the person did it, I'm like, yeah, okay. Like no, no duh. Right. I mean, yeah, you, you move your hand two inches and yeah, it makes sense. But I'm thinking like, so then why are all these people doing it wrong? Or why are they doing it this way? Because we just taught to move fingers. You see, it's not, it's not based that we actually move. Nobody thinks that this is a system of movement. Because all you see are fingers moving. So all the, the methodologies have been based, develop the fingers, develop the fingers, develop the fingers. And everything that it's connected to was not, you know, was not uh, taken into consideration, except that some people figured out that this probably was not the full story. And they started relaxing a lot of weight. And that caused tremendous amount of weight from the shoulder, from the upper arm, so there was a release, there's a release for, for a short time, you know, a little bit of relaxation and it's still taught, uh, relax, relax, relax. And, uh, and then that caused problems. And based also when you see someone play, you see that other parts are moving, but if you initiate from those parts, like the upper arm, which is moved by a slow muscle, you get tired, you know? So the question is, so what are the actual initiators here? And because the body is connected, what is, what is following it rather than initiating it? So it turns out it's the finger, it's the hand, the forearm can do sideways motions, the in and out motions, the shaping motions, and this, the upper arm follows, but it does. So it moves in very small amounts. It's like when I go to, to pick up something, I don't go for my shoulder. I don't go for my upper arm. I'll get tired right away. We don't know that we do it, but we move really from the thing, we move from the hand, from the form, and we move as a unit. Because if we did in life what we do at the piano, we couldn't function. If we just moved with our fingers and the drop wrist, I used to say in desperation, try to hold on a bottle of water. With wrists like that, with the fingers like this, try to do it. And we told to do that at the piano. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. That's just, when you say it like this, it just makes it so, like, you're like, I'm just like, yeah, that's so clear. I but know it's I'm, clear. And yet, and yet it's not clear. We, we feel, feel that it's very much, it's very mysterious. The whole thing is very mysterious. And there's a fear of losing the mystery. And I, you know, when you, when you realize how something works, you, you don't, it doesn't lose the mystery. It's like babies, you know, you have four kids. Isn't it, isn't it still a miracle to see you know how they conceived, but how does it all happen? And then they come out and then the, the little thing, and then they grow and they grow and they change. And it, I mean, this is a miracle. We know how it happens, but what's the source of all of this? Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. I know, I know what happens biologically. I, I can even tell you what happens chemically and all that other stuff, but why does my son think feel this way as opposed to my daughter who think feels this way? They're both first born in their gender. One's first born in the family. Once, I mean, I can break all that down, but one's extremely extroverted. One's extremely introverted. And, um, and yet they'll have very similar value systems, but they just, they live in them completely differently. So I, yeah, I get it. That's so cool. Edna, this has been just a joy and a pleasure to spend this time with you. Um, I wonder if you could, if you could answer just a couple more questions for me. Um, what can we learn from someone who's a prodigy? And I asked that question because I, I see people who are really good at what they do. And, and I know it's not all born. Like they just, they, there's no gene that comes with that. I know that there's, there's some talent that's, that's inherited from mom and dad to a degree, but there has to be something else there. But, but what can we learn from someone who's a prodigy? Well, a prodigy is really a miracle. I have to say, I mean, it is, whether you're religious or not, it, it is a God given feel. Uh, uh, we don't know how it happens, but what we can learn from it, instead of just saying, well, this is, you know, Nobody else can do it. And that's what uh, I think Dorothy took from it, is that the body's capable of doing like amazing things. And, and if, if we only understand what these things are, we can have it for ourselves. We may not be like the prodigies because today three, four year olds are playing Chopin etudes. You know, I mean, it's like, I think they burn out by age six or seven, but uh, you know, but they put them in the tiny little things so I think that um, I think this is this is really what it is to me. I mean, the fact that they're prodigies to me is kind of miraculous. Maybe they lived another life. I don't know because they're kind of old souls. You know, they have the, the kids who at a very young age have tremendous amount of information. They understand at age 12, they finished college. You know, I mean, how does that happen? I have no explanation for that. You know, the things that we just don't know that are mysterious, how it happens and to have that kind of gift. I think the takeaway is that it can be lost. Now, does it mean that the person lost their talent? No. They lost the, the no, they don't know what they did. And there is no information in their hands to get off whatever was wrong and to get right back on the horse. So I don't know if there is, I think that it's, that it's possible. You know, the body is capable for all of those things, but we have to take us ourselves where we are, get the right information and be the best that we can be, which is a lot more than we ever thought we were able to do. Really, when you give this to people, I mean, this is really one of the greatest satisfactions. People see themselves in a totally different light. That they, they, and it does expand the brain. I know that it makes you more intelligent, this learning. So I don't know. I'm looking at my notes. Uh, it also, I'll tell you what else you, you the, it's, it's maybe probably not, not what you expected to hear. But the fact that someone can, at, at a very young age, do such developed skills without years of practicing, without all the exercises that we're given, 
means that there is something very natural, you know, that the body is capable of doing and that the years of practicing and not getting results, you know, it, we're practicing the same things and very often don't get better. Sometimes we improve. I practice and I improved some, but I know that I hit a wall. And today, and many, for many years, I know also that it wouldn't have gotten much better because of this and this and that. And I was thinking the other day that isn't it the definition of madness to keep doing the same thing and expecting results when, when you're not. It is madness. So I think that, that the lesson is, is more that, that if you put in the right things, you know, that it can be there, that those particular individuals just had that innate and they don't get better and I, I very often we have you know in summer institutes when we've had people and some of them were incredible pianists and I could see the hands and I knew that that person is going to deteriorate they're forcing through and they're incredible it's great huge talent does that answer it? Um, yeah, it does. It does. And um, it, it's encouraging to know that, you know, that there are things that we, we, we may never be a prodigy uh, to a certain degree, but there are always things that we can do to keep growing, to keep improving. Uh, and it's important to know that, you know, things that things that we do now have an effect on the future. But also if we, if we just, if we don't practice them uh, and, and willing, I mean, what I think I'm hearing is if we don't practice them in a way that we're willing to, to look at things a little differently from a different perspective, you're just going to keep repeating them the same mistake over and over and over again. And that's when you hit that wall. And um, so what, what I pull away from our conversation about, uh, about all of that is there's a lot to learn about how people learn. And even though somebody has a tremendous amount of skill and a tremendous amount of talent, uh, you can never forget about the fundamentals, the, 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 for a lack of a better term, the ergonomics of, of what we're doing uh, and how we can find the key to unlock that door to get that potential and that, uh, that talent to grow um, even beyond the shadow of a doubt when somebody walks into your, your, your classroom or your office and says, I don't know if I can do it anymore. Right. And you, you have to get, you cannot, we cannot figure it out ourselves. It took several hundred years because those injuries were written about in slightly different way, but it's the same 300 years ago. Oh, and really? A doctor, Ramazzini, an Italian doctor who talked about uh drummer of palsy. If I remember, he realized that there was a relationship between movement and injury. He saw people in the field who were moving a certain way and had pain. 19th century. I mean, there's, there's a lot written, you know, it's not a new problem. And they've done, they did the surgeries, you know, early 20th century, then people couldn't, you know, play anymore. It's the same problems. It's just that with the new technology, we thought that things could improve, but basically we still treat symptoms and not don't get to the root causes. What this work does is give information. We, we need the sources of information whatever the field is, that explain what are the root causes, how things work, and we can tell it's right or wrong by the way it feels in the body. When something makes you better and better and better, I have talked to adults and said, you know, now you're a prodigy. 
because the it, because the, the facility grew and the understanding grew it takes a while because it's like a whole other language you use sometimes similar words that we use in everyday like weight and like gravity and like this and like that but it's explained very differently in terms of how how the mechanism for playing works so people become prodigy in the sense that they become so good and, and the learning becomes so easy you know as uh, as you develop but uh, yeah that's great Edna, thanks again for taking the time to be with me tonight. I really appreciate uh, you you being here. And um, it's a, it's amazing the work that you do. And we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the method that you teach. Um, but I'll make sure that I include some links for people to go to YouTube and, and watch some of the tutorials and watch some of your lectures. Um, there is a lot of crossover from what you do in the musical world to what I do in trades education and what some of my other colleagues do in, in, in the educational world. There's a lot that we can learn from this conversation that, that will apply. And, uh, I, I just, I, I thank you again for taking the time. It's, it's been an honor to, to spend it with you. My pleasure. It was really, really a pleasure. And if there's anything you ever want to ask me, write to me. And if there's okay. anything I can learn from what you do. Mm. I'd be interested. Okay. Okay. Thank you.